The EU's argument with COVID-19 vaccine suppliers, Estonia becomes the only country in the world to have both a female president and prime minister, and Cairo is about to get a new tourist attraction. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. So hello and welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. I am Markus Hippi, joined by Monocle 24 producer-presenter Daniel Bage, who's joining me from London, and our Europe editor-at-large, Ed Stocker, who's in Milan. Welcome to the programme. The weather has been pretty freezing here in London. Daniel, I know you are an enthusiastic cyclist. Is there a temperature that's too cold for you, forcing you to opt for a bus or the underground instead ever? <laughs> Good question. Uh, it has been very cold these last few days in London. We even got that dusting of snow over the weekend, but I still went out. It has been uh, it has been okay. I will uh, admit, Marcus, I for Christmas bought myself some waterproof trousers, which have been very helpful, uh, and a very nice uh, water-resistant uh, pack from, from Brooks, England. Very nice uh, to, to carry my laptop into the office. I've still been uh, cycling from home to the studio, which isn't too far about 20 minutes each way and it's uh it's been a bit cold but if you dress warm uh it's just fine i think it's a perfect time actually to take up cycling and or running uh and uh for me the drop off (laughs) for running is minus 15 marcus but that's in canada temperatures we would never see in london for cycling maybe minus five but again it's not a fashion statement it's uh just dress warm and you'll be fine (laughs) Well, I did sign up for a half a marathon myself, which is due to happen in May. We'll see. I haven't really been running yet, though. Maybe one day. Ed Stocker, we are getting to the end of January already. I, I wonder, have you managed to keep your New Year's promises or have you broken them already? I think the main thing, Marcus, is is not to make any. I think I may have mentioned this on Monocle 24 before. I've never been a big one for New Year's resolutions, and I, I do intend to stay that way. I just want to make a very quick statement about cycling. I'm a keen cycler as well. Uh, lived in New York for six years, and... When you're complaining about the cold in London, Daniel as a Canadian will know this, obviously, but it's really, it may be a bit cold at the moment there, but compared to a really cold New York day, it's nothing. I was cycling with these sort of lobster gloves, ski socks pulled up to my knees, occasionally balaclavas. I cycled through winter. It was great. Loved it. That's all I've got to say. You see those people in Finland as well, no matter what weather it is. But anyway, let's continue now with the day's biggest news stories. And let's start with an argument that's been brewing between the European Union and COVID-19 vaccine suppliers. After AstraZeneca and Pfizer-BioNTech both said production problems mean they cannot supply the expected numbers. The EU has now warned the producers they must deliver agreed vaccine supplies. There are fears that reductions could seriously slow down the vaccine rollout in the union. Quentin Peel, who used to be the Financial Times correspondent in Berlin, gave us his view on this argument. Let's have a listen. The EU has got, I think, a real political problem. They have clearly been slower in ordering in advance enough vaccines 
to get their populations vaccinated in good time. They're way behind both the US and the UK, who've spent about seven times more up front than the EU did. And I think the truth is that the UK and the US showed they were prepared to cut corners and the EU has been terribly bureaucratic about the whole thing. So that's one of the problems they've got to deal with. And it's ironic because, of course, the very first vaccine that was developed, developed in Germany and being exploited in the US. But we are talking about, in manufacturing terms, a huge operation to get the sheer quantity of stuff produced. And I think that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing that the factories producing these vaccines are really struggling to manage the quantities. Quentin Peel there. Ed, how worrying is this, Roe? The European Union is now threatening vaccine manufacturers with legal action if it doesn't get its vaccines. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? We're really seeing the EU flexing its muscles, making strong statements, as you said, threatening uh, legal action. Uh, Giuseppe Conte, who, of course, resigned as prime minister in Italy. That's a separate story. But he's been very outspoken and vocal, particularly over this past weekend, uh, about the fact that uh, these companies have not met the amount of vaccines that they said they would. Um, Look, these companies, not not trying to let them off the hook, but these companies are under enormous pressure. If you think about the billions of doses that they all have to produce in order to sort of uh, meet supply around the world. I guess in crises and times like this, things can go two ways. You can sort of have a united front amongst countries from around the world, which is going to be tough. But then you have everyone who's essentially looking out for their own interests, be it the UK, that of course is no longer part of the European Union, or the Union itself, or other countries. And we're seeing things like uh, differences in reactions and money, and there's issues over whether developing countries are going to have the same access to medicine as richer countries. All very interesting. Uh, The EU had this sort of collective bargaining, if you like, being a 27-member bloc, it was able to negotiate a cheaper price. So that's the reason it it did pay less uh, than the UK. Whether that has something to do with it, I'm not sure. But it's going to be an ongoing battle because none of these governments, and be it the EU as a body or the individual nation states within the EU, want to look bad. And you can make the same uh, case for the UK as well. You know, they've set out these targets. They've wanted to have X number of people vaccinated by a certain date. And of course, in order to do that, it's already an uphill struggle, um, you know, to meet the numbers and get ahead of this virus. But if you don't actually have the right number of vaccines, then it's an impossible task. So, In a way, these governments are looking which way to turn and they're trying to apply the pressure. We'll have to see whether there is simply the capacity for them to produce what's needed. That will be interesting to see what changes are able to happen over the coming weeks, Marcus. Daniel, Britain has already been warning the European Union that nationalism over the jabs is the wrong way to go. Do you see that there is indeed the risk that countries are trying to control the spread of vaccines following each on their own principle. Yeah, that's a really interesting one to watch, Marcus, and especially in this period that we're in 
post-Brexit, I think, uh, especially in the UK, where we're really heading into this period of, of real uncertainty for a lot of industries here, which are going to struggle. And that has a lot to do with global economics and the pandemic we are seeing. But uh, I think any uh, inward turn or or uh, further disruption is, is only going to make things worse, uh, I should say, on, on a global picture, if we're talking about uh, the actual economies. But on the vaccines, that plays obviously a huge role in what's happening uh, around the world and, and how we're thinking about the rest of this year. Uh, a lot of people, uh, as Ed pointed out, sort of uh, set targets. A lot of countries have, have created these these targets and they've they've spread their uh, you know hand pretty wide uh, buying lots of vaccines from all these different producers. but it's it's a waiting game now to see if they will be able. Uh, to deliver, I think, on on those orders. But um, here in the UK, I think it's a matter of continuing the strong rollout with the supply that we do have and continue uh, to get. But at the same time, uh, not uh, starting to hoard or or uh, uh, be worried about only our own population. Now, there's some really good reading out there uh, today. People who have been weighing in on this exact topic, Marcus. You know, we forget about the smaller nations and the consequences could be devastating considering how globalized the world is these days and and the the uk will certainly need some strong partners with the trade deals that we do have uh, so i think forgetting about uh, the smaller nations is is a problem bloomberg has some fantastic statistics about uh, the bigger companies and how uh, widely they've sort of uh, spread out their purchasing for all the different vaccines. And of course, uh, all the G7 nations are very high up there in their purchasing. They're obviously waiting for a lot of shipments. Uh, there's been some problems with Pfizer. There is obviously the, the issues this week with AstraZeneca. Uh, but interestingly, Marcus, you also look at New Zealand and Australia, and they haven't, they've handled the pandemic very well, but they haven't even started to roll out the vaccine. So I think for the UK, uh, the most important thing right now will be uh, continuing that uh, widespread vaccination, that strong rollout. But uh, let's hope that uh, uh, there is uh, less disruption in the days and weeks ahead, because uh, obviously, as we've seen, that's creating some issues uh, between uh, everyone and the European Union. Looking at other vaccine-related news, I don't think the offices of Germany's Handelsblatt newspaper were a very happy place this morning. The paper last night claimed that the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is only 8% effective amongst the over 65-year-olds. The German health ministry has now denied the story, saying that this 8% figure instead referred to the proportion of 56 to 69-year-olds in the vaccine trials. Ed, what is your reaction? What are your thoughts about a mistake like this? I know it's easy to think, oh, look, a bit of Brexit bashing here. AstraZeneca headquartered in Cambridge, only 8% effective. Germany weighs in. But of course, it seems that this is um, a bad error from Handelsblatt. As you said before, uh, there's there was an immediate denial from AstraZeneca, as you would expect, saying the figure was completely incorrect. And then, as you also said, the health minister as well said the report was speculation. So um, not really very helpful, really, is it? Uh, at times like this, when there is, you could say, heated um, back and forth between uh, pharma companies and governments to have an, an article appearing like this, which is just simply incorrect, factually incorrect, uh, and sending out the wrong message. So it will be interesting to see how Handelsblatt backpedals, what it does, uh, what it means for uh, the business dailies 
figures and readership uh, whether it's affected by this um, but um not not a good uh, you know not a, a a great thing to have done and and, and an error that it's going to be uh, hurting i'm sure well let's then continue to estonia that has become the only country in the world with women serving both as prime minister and president the country's new government was sworn in earlier today officially making kaya kallas the country's first female prime minister the previous government had to resign due to a corruption scandal kadri leek senior policy fellow at the european council on foreign relations wasn't too surprised that estonia got a new female leader let's hear what she had to say Estonia is a country where there always has been gender equality. Women have always worked as hard as men. Things that worried people have always been such things that unite men and women rather than divide. I mean, when I grew up, getting rid of Soviet occupation was the big thing. And dealing with that, men and women were the same. So, you know, I don't see it as, as such a big breakthrough. But of course, I mean, nominally it is because Estonia hasn't had that sort of thing earlier. But I think it happened naturally because many of these young women are on the top of Reform Party. They are close associates of, of Kaya Kallas. So it wasn't like they were sort of picked just because they were women, but they just occupy these places in politics. Kadri Leek, Estonian herself, there. Daniel, what does it tell us about a country if it has a female leader? I take what uh, Kadri Leek said there in that clip uh, to heart, where she talked about the fact that for people in Estonia, they might understand uh, a little something about equality or might look at their society where uh, we ha- there is a bit more equality. But uh, I think the symbol of having the leader being a, a woman is very important uh, for any country and for the rest of the world. To see that, it does mark a step forward, I think. Obviously, look at uh, good press uh, from different countries around the world, from from New Zealand and beyond uh, what's happened in the United States last week uh, with Kamala Harris. It's a really important step, and I think it uh, it's, it's good, especially in this time where I worry about a little bit of backsliding on, on equality and things. There's a really good um, newspaper report in the Globe and Mail in Canada over the weekend uh, illustrating uh, what sort of uh, the, not the political sphere, but the, what the business sphere has looked like um, and, and what has changed throughout the pandemic. And the, there's really been some backsliding on uh, equality in boardrooms and the C-suite level for businesses across the country where it's it's even more male dominated. So I think in the political sphere, uh, it's quite important as well to see uh, this. And I, I think it is a step forward. It's, it's, a, it's a real symbol to not only their EU partners, but people right around the world uh, that, uh, especially uh, Miss Kalas, she's, she's quite a young woman as well. So I think that uh, is important for, uh, for the country and uh, for uh, the projects that they'll want to work on uh, in the EU. Ed, knowing that Estonia now has two female leaders, does that change the way you see the country? Can I just say, great pronunciation. I, I, I take that's from the proximity between Estonia and Finland. You, you're, prob- you're probably the only person on the show getting that right. Uh, are the languages very similar? Quick question for you, Marcus, to turn it on you. They are. We can't quite understand each other because words have different meanings because those two languages separated thousands of years ago. But you can get a clue when I'm reading Estonian newspapers. I don't always need any translators. Sometimes it makes sense in Finnish too. 
Well, I mean, I mean, talking about Estonia, I think it's just interesting. Look, it's a tiny nation of about 1.3 million people, of course, part of uh, the Soviet Union in the past. I think it, it will it will make people turn their heads a little bit and want to know uh, about Estonia. And, and it's, you know, it's been a country that perhaps people didn't know a lot about until fairly recently, but it, it's been doing uh, very interesting things. It's obviously really tried to uh, gear itself up to be open to uh, entrepreneurship of recent, uh, kind of uh, calling itself um, the digital nation and, and and pioneering this this thing called e-residency, which is basically allowing people easy access online to things like banking and payment processing and taxation. So it's been very forward looking in that regard, also in terms of uh, mobility and public transport and things like that. So I think this will cement really the fact that you do now have both the prime minister and the president who are women just really uh, will, will be good for, for the brand, will be good for soft power, will we'll kind of go in line with those things I mentioned as well, thinking this is a progressive, interesting European nation uh, and, and maybe make people want to know more. Daniel, do you agree with that, that this can be a boost for Estonia's soft power? You work with our business programme, The Entrepreneurs, and Ed mentioned e-residency, for example, how Estonia is trying to attract new talent. Do you think there's there's indeed the chance that people read news headlines about Estonia now having two female leaders and they kind of want to know more about that country? 100%. I think people will be watching this one closely and thinking about uh, what it means uh, for their next move or opportunity, perhaps uh, uh, thinking of uh, Tallinn, perhaps as a, as a new Berlin, of course, you create a welcoming environment and, and uh, wait to see if people will arrive. I think back actually to a good conversation I had with the founder of a company called Jabatical, which is based uh, out of Estonia. And uh, we had this exact conversation about how sort of a small nation like that can make itself attractive uh, on the world stage for people to come. Obviously, you pointed out the, the e-passport there and the potential to, to have people come there is it would be very attractive for, for someone working remotely, of course, for, a, for perhaps a bigger multinational or a company based somewhere else uh, for its quality of life. Um, great capital, uh, close to a lot of other places and uh, it's looking like a very vibrant uh, startup scene. So I, I think, you know, y- you show people that there is a welcoming environment uh, in, in a social sense, and uh, it, it can do wonders, Marcus. I really think it'll uh, it'll really help the country uh, uh, selling itself abroad. Exactly. I have to agree that Estonia has done really well for itself, considering the size. It's got about 1.3 million people. But let's move on. Finally, a bit earlier today on our other news programme, The Briefing, Monaco's Andrew Müller and Nick Muniz discussed one of this week's top urbanism stories. Let's have a listen. Well, let's move along to Egypt, where in Cairo they're going to build a Ferris wheel, which I guess can't do any real harm. No, but I mean, really, is it is it something that you want to be spending 26 million euros on? I I don't know. Is that a lot for a Ferris wheel? I've got no idea how much these things cost. I, it just seems like a lot of money for me. So, And it feels like it could be money better invested in some other gimmick that plenty of other cities haven't already done. I mean, the, the obvious move here is to make it a tourist attraction, which I appreciate, but it's been done over and over and over and over. I mean, I told you there's always a way to work Australia into these stories. And, <laughs> uh, you know, my 
home city of Perth was, I would even consider late to the table when they did a Ferris wheel in 2014. It's since been dismantled because, I mean, what's there to see from the top of a Ferris wheel in Perth? Uh, see, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. I, knew, I, I was about to, and then you just did it for me. I knew that was coming, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm up and about today, Andrew. I'm on the defensive. But I, I guess for me, it just sort of seems like I appreciate it's a folly, and follies are fun, and, and it adds some interest to cities. But I, I just would have liked to have seen Cairo go for something a little bit different, maybe just build a bizarre structure, an upside-down pyramid, or, or something along those lines. I don't know, I'm spitballing, but you get the gist. Ed and Daniel, are you booking your flights already to head to Cairo? I would love to go, actually. Yeah, it seems like a, a great place. I've always wanted to do the old cruise down the Nile. But uh, as far as the uh, Ferris wheel goes, I mean, I would be steering well clear of that. I really like Nick's point about, you know, this this sort of gimmick being done in many places in the past. You think of London and they, they were able to create an icon out of the eye, but it seems a, a bit of a a tired idea, I think, of uh, how well the idea for a Ferris wheel was received in Toronto uh, about 10 years ago uh, when the uh, now Premier Doug Ford, when he was a councillor, then pitched the idea of of a uh, Ferris wheel and a monorail, Marcus, a monorail of all things for uh, the Portlands, this, this old industrial area on a prime piece of land that overlooks Toronto's beautiful skyline. And uh, he sort of got laughed out of the room, Marcus. So uh, I, I don't know if that will get me to Cairo, but uh, perhaps uh, sticking away from that part of it if they do put it up. Ed, how excited are you? Yeah, I, yeah, I have to agree with uh, everyone else, really. I, it's not a terribly original idea, and it seems like Egypt's getting in late on the game. And also the timing and the amount of money, but largely the timing. You just think an announcement like this at this time during a global pandemic, there are some 162,000 cases in Egypt, not the worst affected country, but still pretty badly affected. Over 9,000 people have died, and you think... Is this the right thing to be doing? I mean, the only positive I can see is that apparently 1,200 direct employment positions will be created out of this. So it is a source of employment. I don't know how long those jobs will last, but hopefully it can provide some sort of stimulus um, to the economy. Now, obviously, uh, there's also that secondary point of the fact that this is meant to be uh, Egypt positioning itself uh, apparently, I'm not really quite sure how from a wheel like this, as a sort of sustainable tourism mecca or centre, but we don't really know when people are going to start travelling again, we don't know when people are going to be comfortable jumping back on planes for holidays, so Again, I mentioned timing. Another of those poor timings may be the fact that there are not going to be that many people who are going to want to see it anyway for several years. I have to agree on what you said, that this idea of a Cairo eye is a bit of a tired one, considering that in Finland, even Helsinki has got one Ferris wheel now and one of the capsules has been converted into a sauna, obviously. Haven't been there. Supposedly, it's not too great as an experience. It's not even that high. Just finally, before we go, I was wondering if you might have any recommendations instead. What are some of your favourite tourist attractions? Oh, that's that's a good question, Marcus. Thanks for throwing that one in here. Uh, I'm going to sort of half answer and say that there was a a sort of tourist attraction in Buenos Aires where I lived for about four or five years that I never got to visit, and I'm I'm, I'm sort of really upset about it. Um, I, I should probably take it seriously, but it was called Tierra Santa, Holy Land, and it's basically a religious 
theme park. Uh, religious sort of Christian religion uh, from all over the world. I think there's a sort of a big Christ and I, I can't even, I think they recreate Jerusalem in there. Um, there may even be rides. It just sounded so bizarre. Uh, I, I think it's kind of amazing that they had the sort of guts and gall to do that. But one of those things that one day maybe I can go and visit when the world returns to normal. Yeah, definitely, Marcus. I'm I'm a big one for parks, so I uh, I tend to be attracted to the big parks right around the world. And I was uh, talking to a friend in Mexico today and thinking about uh, Chapultepec, the big park there. But w- I am a real sucker, Marcus, for ruins. I don't know why, and uh, I love the Mayan ruins. So Teotihuacan, uh, North Mexico City, is is a great one. And uh, the top of my list, I think, is Palenque. I bet Ed's been there, but uh, I'd love to go there one day. Like the ruins, Marcus, not really one for uh, the polished uh, tourist attractions. Sounds very good. Thank you for those recommendations. Ed Stocker in Milan and Daniel Bage in London. And that's all for today's late edition. Thanks to all our editors today and to our studio manager, Sam Impey. I am Marcus Hippi here at Midori House in London. Goodbye and thanks for being with us.